Hi there and welcome to a new Dishcast. So grateful for you listening to us every week. Hit new records last week in terms of a, a single podcast in the, the Leosa Peer podcast on gender identity turned out to be, you know, before I did it, I was like, you know, people are so sick to death of trans stuff and I talk about it too often. Everyone thinks I'm mad. So I should probably just let off. But I put something like that up there and suddenly, woo, it's huge traffic. Lots of people are interested. If you put something that's intelligent out there, I think, and relatively calm, I don't think these topics that people tell me are totally done or overplayed are necessarily done or overplayed. Anyway, I should trust my instinct sometimes on these things. So thank you for keeping listening and, and for increasing your subscriptions to us. Please, if you like this podcast and you want to listen to all of it, become a subscriber to the daily to the weekly dish, the daily dish, the weekly dish at this point. It helps us do what we're doing. No ads. You're not going to have me telling you how great my new lawnmower is on this uh, podcast because we are going to stick to the the true and the good and the beautiful, to coin a phrase. <laughs> Which comes to mind with our, our guest this week, Spencer Claven. He's a writer and a podcaster. He's currently an associate editor at the Claremont Review of Books and the host of Young Heretics Pod. Now, he's the author of How to Save the West, Ancient Mod Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. And you can follow his uh, writing on Substack as well. Spencer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Just a heads up, coming up, we have Matthew Crawford, the author of Shop Class of Soulcraft, another really original writer and thinker. And then also David Brooks and Pamela Paul, why not? The, the creme de la New York Times, the, and really is the creme, there's plenty of other stuff there. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on. It's really nice to meet you and to, and to interact with you. Oh, it's a delight, Andrew. I've been following your work for... As long as I can remember following anybody's work. Well, and so it's a pleasure to be introduced. That is very sobering. I, am, I didn't want to make you feel old. No, I, no, I mean, don't worry. Like, you don't, you're not making me feel old. I feel old. It's <laughs> like, oh, I, I'm starting to click my pen. I can't do that because it, it irritates people. No, but I. it seems like there's a lot that we have in common, even though we're like 20, no, 30 years apart almost. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by is is the generational shifts and the things I went through as a young conservative, in a way, a Catholic conservative, a believer, and what it was like for you in a not too dissimilar situation, but 30 years later, and, mm -hmm. and what that tells us about where we are as the West. But tell us, to begin with, where, did you where were you born and grew up? Sure. Well, I have had a kind of an itinerant, I had an itinerant childhood, and I've continued to move around a lot. I was born in New York, but promptly whisked away to London, which is where I remember, you know, learning to speak. The first memories I have are of our apartment in Fulham. And I was there until I was about seven years old. My dad is and was at the time a novelist, didn't really have to be anywhere, pioneer, early adopter of the work from home mentality. And he spent most of his childhood in about a 10 block radius in Manhattan. And all of his family had been there as well. And he was really feeling stir crazy, wanted 
uh, new scenery, new horizons, and had associated England with a kind of antique romance. So that's where we went. We just picked up my sister's eight years older than I am, so remembers the move, but I don't. I really, you know, grew up within the British schooling system, had a British accent that I subsequently beat out of myself when we moved back to America and I wanted to sound like all the other kids. But remember with some fondness and also some kind of uh, sadness, the experience of the really rigorous British education system. They taught you to read very early, a highly kind of uh, verbal approach to early childhood education and probably seeped deep into my bones in that respect, given what I've ended up doing and where I've ended up going, um, especially since I resisted for the longest possible time being a writer like my dad going in my dad's footsteps. So obviously something caught there. I We ended up moving to Santa Barbara, California, which is, if you've ever been, is like on the on the model of Cape Cod as a kind of byword for this natural paradise. Lived a couple doors down from Oprah's service entrance. So her actual, the actual entrance to her compound was like 10 blocks away, but that we were nearby where people would go to like work the lawn and stuff and had just a really idyllic time there growing up kind of among my new Southern California friends until I went off to to Yale as an undergraduate in Oxford for my PhD in classics. And, and by that time, kind of the great love of my life, which turned out to be the Western canon and the great books had sort of asserted itself against my best intentions. I thought I was going to go off and be an actor. That's what I wanted, said I wanted to do from about middle school onward. But gradually it started to impress itself upon me that in my spare time, all I was doing was sitting in the library, pouring over like uh, Aristotle and working on my Greek verb conjugations. And let me let stuff. me take you back to the, the first seven years. And you talked about the English education system. That's quite early to be impacted by the English education system. What, yeah. what, what elementary school did you go to out of interest? I went first to Eaton House and then to Fulham Prep. I okay. switched a couple years in and yeah Eaton House um, being the prep school for Eden I, I don't recall whether they're directly associated I actually don't think that they, oh, okay. they are but maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering that just the name and when did we first introduced to the ancient languages Latin and ancient Greek I had a mandatory year of Latin in seventh grade, so I was lucky that way. It was after we moved to the States, so not in the uh, British schools. But this was something that you kind of had to do before, if you were most people, you went on to Spanish or indeed Chinese or something more practical. Everybody dreaded it, of course, except me. I already kind of knew that there was a, a richness associated in my mind with that civilization. And so I was really excited about it and ended up, you know, falling completely in love with it. Like many classicists had just an absolutely dynamic first Latin teacher who was, you know, extremely gifted, but also had a just connection to old things, a, a delight in kind of that face-to-face -face encounter with the past that you get out of the classical languages and, yeah, took to it like a fish to water. Now, Latin is one thing, but ancient Greek is another, of course. It, it's my lifelong biggest regret, apart from being circumcised, <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is, is, is that I didn't learn ancient Greek as a kid because at this point, it's, I'm not going to learn it. And, and I... I just find the idea of reading 
the Gospels in particular in Greek to be too exciting for words. And there is an element Mm -hmm. of of inevitable distance that you'll get from those texts through Mm -hmm. translation that you don't. So when did you start ancient Greek, which is itself also a really difficult language? Right, right. First of all, I did not realize that this was an intactivist podcast. I, I would have prepared more material on the subject had I been aware. But we'll leave that to one side, I guess. I actually I actually started ancient Greek in my senior year of high school. And that was because I had been so enamored of Latin that I had, quote unquote, run out of Latin classes. Obviously, I was still working on it. But my teacher, that, that sort of fabulous first teacher, did an independent study with me. And I did not succeed at it. But my first year, I was I was a terrible Greek student and very much thought of myself as a Latinist all the way up through grad school when I proposed a project that was about the Greek and Latin authors. And then as you do, just never got around to the Latin authors, sort of just found myself down these rabbit warrens. But actually, to your point about the Gospels, had a really profound experience during my master's degree of picking up the Gospels for the first time in Greek and realizing that I could read them because there's this kind of narrative among Greek scholars that they're totally different. The Gospels are in a totally different kind of Greek from, say, Homer, because Homer is this kind of Kunstsprache that, that is its own beast. And then you get the Attic Greek of you know Demosthenes, but then Koine is like street Greek. It's like this kind of patois for the, the common folk or whatever. And that's what the Gospels are written in. And actually, with a minimal kind of adjustment, if you learn one of these kinds of Greek, you can really read them all. It's sort of like different dialects more than different languages. And so, yeah, the, it's exactly what you said, the immediacy and also the escape from what I've come to think of as church words. And that's words that have become so such such bumper stickers in the various American denominations, at least, that we almost can't hear them anymore. You know, words like repentance, forgiveness, mercy, sin, judgment, all of these words that come at you afresh in a new language. And suddenly, I mean, things like, for instance, the fact that in ancient Greek, there are there are two different words for forgiveness, and the Gospels only ever use one of them. There's, there's one that means sort of, I, I forgive you because I understand what you did. And the other one, which is the only one the Gospels use, is I, I don't understand, but I cast it off. Afiemi, I throw it aside. And those sorts of textures, just, you know, that's it's really the primary gift of, of learning ancient languages or any language, really. And even, even conversational tones, the, the, mm-hmm. the way Jesus actually speaks, yeah. he has a slightly odd form of expression. He, he start, verily, verily, what, what is translated that way in truth yeah. in, or some sort of weird re- repetition. What is that in the Greek? In this amen, amen, lego soy. Amen, amen, I tell you is, is usually what's being translated there. Sometimes you get versions that will, you know, introduce that kind of turn of phrase at other points, but that's the core expression. And actually it speaks to a really fascinating element of the Gospels, which in turn, I think, is a profound fact about Christianity as compared to other religions. And that is that the Gospels are already a translation. In other words, they're written in Greek, but the conversations and the interactions that they record would largely have happened in Aramaic or in Hebrew. And so there's no version of reading the Gospels that is the quote-unquote authentic original 
version. This is very different from the Torah and certainly from the Quran, which is a word that literally just means recitation, you know, these syllables, these words. And, and that's why, you know, if you convert to Islam, it's very likely that you'll have some training in classical Arabic. It's not likely at all that you'll have training in, in Attic or Koine Greek if you convert to Christianity, because the whole point of the religion is incarnation, is embodiment. It, and that's a form of translation, right? You take the spirit and you put flesh on it and flesh becomes like a language. And so a lot of those rhythms that you're reading in English versions are also foreign to the Greek. That is, the Greek is already trying to capture something that is most at home in a Hebrew idiom, which as a biographical point is sort of why after this transformative experience, I ended up teaching myself Hebrew because I realized there's like still, there was sort of much, much more to it than I, why not Aramaic? Than I was getting. <laughs> Good question. Well, it's similar to, it's like Koine. It's like, you know, if you, if you start with kind of biblical Hebrew, that's like the classical form and then you can, you can branch out. But uh, So when you first became entranced with Latin, what hmm. was it that you were entranced with? I had, I mean, just because I tell you, I had this, I had the same, I mean, huh. I, I had, I definitely fell in love with Latin quite young. Yeah. I was 11 when I started learning it. Um, and, uh, but you tell me what, what was it about that? And then yeah. Greek that was so exciting to you as a young, as a kid, as a, as a boy. Yeah. You know, it's a great question. And it's one that I have tried to answer to myself a million different ways because, in some sense, that's like that golden thread that has pulled me throughout my whole career. You know, the same thing that made me entranced with Latin brought me in the end to kind of where I am. It's been that attraction, that pull. And the only word I can use to describe the quality of it is richness that I, I sensed in first actually in translation and then ultimately in the in the original language that this was rich soil out of which, you know, really significant and meaningful things could grow. I remember lying on my grandparents' apartment floor in Manhattan. We had gone to visit them and I was reading Richmond Lattimore's translation of The Odyssey, which was my first grown-up book. It was the first time I read something that was not aimed at kids. And you have to understand that my grandparents would let you watch so many cartoons, like as many cartoons as you wanted. And for somebody like me who loves, you know, TV and and all that and like pop art and stuff to to be riveted instead by a book when you could be watching Cartoon Network was kind of th that transformative first experience. And, you know, I think it has to do in part with the winnowing effect of the canon that things which endure over time tend to endure for a reason. And so often you're getting something that comes kind of infused, not just with its own significance, but with the significance that it's born for people generation after generation, that connection to the past and, and the combination of the kind of hoary antiquity with that feeling of immediacy that like suddenly you're just having a conversation with somebody, especially when you learn the, you know, when you learn Latin or, or Greek, does any of that resonate with, with you and why it pulled you? Yeah. What was your... uh, I mean, I just, Oh, I, you know, I'm reading as I was taught like Pliny the Younger and having him describe dolphins in the bay one day or, or reading Tacitus's histories, which, which again, and actually, and this is, I felt really I'd gotten a long way when I actually Tacitus, Tacitus 
got me to LOL at a couple of points. Because yeah. in fact, Tacitus <laughs> yeah. is quite funny in a very dry uh, way. But yeah, for me, well, it was it was the language of the faith I was brought up in. I mean, it was mm. this it was this code that that continued through two thousand years. So that when I when I would sing the credo at mass on a Sunday, I now had the tools to understand what that meant entirely. Although it was kind of lovely mm. for a while to sing the credo with having no idea what it meant, except that we all yeah. sang it. To finally yeah. in getting to understand what it meant, every Protestant listening to this just fainted. And then yes, then then this sense, this this dawning sense that you get of, I think there was sort of three stages in my growing up thinking about this the first is that you sort of think the the world is about everything started with churchill that was uh, you know things happened that way (laughs) because people talk about the last war as i grew up and and that was the big event and then there was uh, everything was in its context and then you realize oh shit you know no this goes back to jesus it's two thousand years (laughs) then you have this knowledge then you then you have the great insight of the american history history modern history which is that it doesn't start modern history it starts in roughly the fifth century ad mm. and then you suddenly realize oh it's it's a book there are two sides of this book and the hinge the hinges mm. <laughs> jesus yeah. there, there was a huge a whole civilization before right. during and before him and that mm. just kind of blew my mind too and that we would understand the languages that those civilizations used and could read them today i mean i guess it's the same the same excitement that people got in the renaissance when they first started rediscovering these things and 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 Mm. treating them newly as texts that might teach us something that's a fantastic point i mean you think of petrarch uncovering a new ciceronian manuscript and what it would feel like to discover that there's more out there or you know digging up the the sort of bronze statue of the chimera that so many of the renaissance sculptors harkened back to i i remember walking in port meadow in the field outside oxford as i was starting to learn hebrew and because i have I, I, my background is Jewish. My my father was Jewish and converted from Judaism to Christianity. You know, I've I've been to a lot of seder's and and you know I've I've been to more as a kid. I had been to more Jewish festivals than I had Christian. You know, it was kind of more at home there, and so I had certain Jewish or Hebrew tags in my head the way that you might have you know credo in unum deum the the the, the Catholic tags. And I had one, Hine Matov Umanaim Shevetachim Gamyachad. Look how beautiful and how sweet it is for two brothers to sit together. And as as often happens, this came back to my mind. And I knew the sound of the Hebrew words and I knew the translation of it. But separately from this, because I had been studying Hebrew, suddenly as I said it over and over again, I realized, oh, I know that word and that word and that word, and kind of the actual meaning of it emerged out of the sounds and it is it's like a face-to-face sudden encounter with this person on the other end of the line you know like the water goes clear or something and it's probably not an accident that it was that kind of experience that that made me a christian you know it was in a it was in a moment of real crisis when i had started turning to the bible out of interest and had a connection to it but was not in any way religious and yet needed desperately needed guidance and the Bible that I happened to have in my room was a Gideon's Bible, you know, one of those cheap blue copies they leave everywhere, worn down almost to its to, to a 
pile of paper. And in the front, the, the Gideons just translate one verse over and over again into a, a bunch of different languages. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that verse was, you know, kind of reprinted in Greek and French and all these languages that I had developed an interest in. And it was out of exactly that experience of seeing, oh, there's the small W words, you know, there's the kind of clothing that we put onto this idea. And then there's the capital W word behind it. And the, those moments when that big W word emerges is when I think antiquity or or even history in general or anything becomes real to you. That's when sort of Jesus was real to me, was was suddenly kind of penetrating behind that screen of language really? in some sense. So yeah. let, let's, let's go back because you, you say you were brought up Jewish. At what point yeah. were you reading a Gideon's Bible? I mean, were you in a hotel, by the way, at the, the time? Or, you, <laughs> or did you have that in your I, own room? Yes, a great question. I don't know how that Bible ended up in our house. I mean, we had wonderful bookshelves in, in my house growing up, a very literary family. And that was just the Bible that I ended up picking up. But And I still have it because it's such sort of significant object to me. But yeah, I should specify, you know, I wasn't really raised Jewish. I was I was raised by like a lapsed sort of ex-Jewish or secular Jewish uh, father and a lapsed Catholic mother. And so our family creed, if there was one, was sort of free thought. You know, we I would describe us as your kind of classic coastal secular Jewish intellectual set. And the thing that we prided ourselves on was that we didn't go to Sunday school and those routes of inquiry were open to us, but there was no sort of dogma handed down within the family. And so this very strange thing under the circumstances started happening, which is that variously the different members of our family started to realize that they believed in something. And I would I say that I was sort of number two on that path. You know, my dad separately had his own conversion, which I was not very really aware of or involved with. And I had this kind of lifelong intu intuition that there was a character to the world around me, that the, that nature was not just nature and, and physical things were not just physical things, that there was something else speaking through the world. And I began, you know, just kind of on my own to associate that with God and to wonder being obviously a sort of nerdy and bookish kid to wonder what that meant. And it, this sort of coincides for me with uh, realizing that I'm gay. This was uh, this, these two things started to kind of crystallize in my mind at once. And it was it was that fact that ended me up in the point of, of crisis, really feeling as if I had nowhere to turn, nothing, no one to talk to. But in the interim, I had set myself on this course of reading in which I just read every kind of scripture I could get my hands on. I read the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and the Tao Te Ching, you know, ages of 14 and 16, you know, just trying to sort of grapple with what it meant that I believed in God. And of course, that involved reading the Torah or the Old Testament and, and the Gospels and the New Testament. And all I can say about that experience is that, you know, it was obviously very edifying and has informed me to this day, but it was only in the Bible that I met the person that I felt I had always encountered in the world. In other words, I'd known this guy my whole life. And now here he was leading the nation of Israel. Now here he was, you know, parting the Red Sea. Here he was walking the earth in human flesh. And that recognition is what made the Bible something that I turned to kind of regularly in moments of crisis, more than just a book of interest for me. But it was a very, yeah, it was not your typical kind of path to that 
to that conversion. And it was it was in in the reading of that of that seminal verse of, of from John's Gospel in the yes. different languages. Yes, that somehow brought that home to you. It was a, it was a moment of clarity, or, or or what? How would you call that? Yeah, I would describe it as a mystical experience, which is something that I believe in, but don't think happens all the time. You know, it's not like I go around in my daily life speaking to angels or anything. But for me, in that moment, the reality of a self-sacrificing and and resurrected God uh, was more than a doctrinal proposition. It was a personal presence. And, and that kind of changed everything. You know, it didn't, it didn't deliver a, a guidebook full of answers to my doorstep, but it did totally alter the way that I understood the world and approached personal problems. And yeah. So you said been... that that happened to coincide with the crisis about being homosexual. That's right. Yeah. So did you reach for that? Bible because you just were in despair? Did you, how did you understand your sexual orientation as sinful? Or how, how was it a crisis for you? I mean, I don't want to put words in your because I think everyone's, everyone's, I want to use the word journey, but everyone's path through this is their own. And just talk us through that yeah. crisis a little bit to help me understand how you experienced it. Yeah, despair is a good word. And it's a despair that I, I was having trouble understanding in part because my family was not anti-gay, if anything, the opposite. You know, they, my mother especially was very, made, took care to communicate to me that if that ended up being who I was, she wouldn't be upset or reject me. And my dad too, you know, never really discouraged me from talking about that stuff. But for me... It shattered a certain kind of put togetherness, a certain perfection about that I attributed to myself. I was a very good student. You know, I, I like checking all the boxes. I like doing things right. And I, you know, I'm told, I don't remember this, but I'm told that when I first learned to speak, I locked myself away in the bathroom and practiced sentences <laughs> until I had them right. You know? And that's the kind of guy I am still. And, and so I think something that represented that profound a difference from the norm was extremely troubling to me, just really compromised my sense of the, somebody that was going to grab each ring one after the other and live a, you know, a perfect checklist life. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll just kind of ignore this. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll get married to a woman anyway was sort of one plan that I had in my head. And one thing that happened to me it, it, during those years is I fell in love for the first time. And, and that kind of brought home to me that something that is it, I'm often at pains to discuss about this when, when, you know, people accuse me of this, that and the other or, or say this, that and the other about gay people is like I'm often at pains to describe the fact that this is not actually a quote-unquote sexual orientation. That is, it's not actually a, a lust or a, just a physical pleasure, but rather a whole way of falling in love, which involves much more of the person than just like the sex organs, you know? And, and when that was driven home to me by the experience of falling in love, I thought, oh, well, this is not, obviously not going to work. Like, I'm not going to put some poor woman through the ordeal 
of my using her as a prop in my ideal life. You know, how old were um, you at this point? Just out of interest, 15, 15, 15. is wow. yeah. And I thought, you know, I was dating a girl at the time, and I just thought this is like radically unfair to her, especially because I'm not telling her. But even if I did, you know, it should treat her as this object, you know. But so that was the last like route that was open to me that I could see forward in my life for both authenticity and you know the the kind of neat box that I thought my life had to had to fit into. And so usually when I, at this point, when I tell the story, it, it sounds a bit like I'm saying, you know, and then Jesus told me it was just fine to come out of the closet, you know, um, and that's definitively not the story. That's not what happened. Instead, what happened is um, <laughs> the encounter with a God who had died specifically for me and not for the imaginary simulacrum of myself that I was putting up ahead in my future of the perfect guy that lived the perfect life just kind of set me free to kind of be honest about what was going on and to to begin the process of talking to people about it. And that's what what changed. Now, since then, you know, I've had many sort of theological discussions about whether it's a sin, what kind of sin it represents and, and so forth. But that was not kind of what that moment was about I've I've come to a reconciliation, you know, sort of more cognitive theological reconciliation since then. But so it was it was almost as if God's love was partly because you were broken, mm. and at, at and, least, and, yeah. and that he see, and that God seemed to love that, so that yeah, so that yeah. finally all of you could be loved as you were. Right. I mean, you know, including the parts of me and and this doesn't just this is not now restricted to sexuality, right? There were all sorts of things, of course, about me that I was unhappy about and that many of which I've since, you know, had to work really hard to change. But the fact that, yeah, as in that brokenness, help was available to me that I didn't have to like button up, button all my buttons before I sought that help. It maybe is the way to describe it. You know, it's funny. There, There is a long an ancient connection between gay men and the church, hmm. which is sometimes ignored, but a, a, a great number of the writers, artists, uh, priests, monks who have devoted their lives to the church have also been gay. And there's there's also been, it strikes me just from my own experience, a kind of affinity between gay people and Christianity that, that again, mm. defies the usual stereotype, but I think is partly, in my own wrestling with this, it's partly because you do feel out of place. Mm. You do feel slightly disconnected. So you have to think harder about who you are and what the world is. And mm. the sense of displacement and the sense... It, connects with a God who himself as man was displaced, was rejected, was different, was other. And that there's some kind of relationship between homosexuality and Christianity, which is not to say that heterosexuality and Christianity aren't thoroughly and more emphatically connected, but there is a particular calling, I think, that gay people have with religion. Maybe because we're historically and not used to having children, so we have our lives to give to something else. And, you know, priests were understood in my days basically marrying the church. 
But there was also, I think, uh, I, I see it in someone like, now I don't want to get into a debate about whether Cardinal Newman was gay, but but someone like Newman, someone like Gerard Manley Hopkins, these people who definitely had a, had some deep sensitivity to the divine, seems to me to be in a, in a way I couldn't really express connected to their sexual difference. It's interesting, you know, because I am extremely... I, I don't agree with those who would say, you know, well, your your sense of the wrongness of this was was accurate, and therefore what you should have done is become celibate. You know, that's kind of a that would be the traditional response here, right? And I don't agree with that, but I I have a lot of time for that approach. I don't think that people who say that are are hateful or um, crazy or you know just trying to like work out some personal prejudice um, and much of my life and my career has been involved with you know in, in dialogue with with people who are more traditional on this question than than I am um, but one thing I I do think is that whether you become celibate because you think that's what God wants of you or you proceed with fear and trembling as I have done into an attempt to sort of live out the the best of what you can in in this in in being gay either way there's no version of your life where your distance from the ideal is not apparent to you all the time it's like you said it's that sense and that deep awareness that even if you become celibate, you'll still be this thing that feels at least different, if not, if not wrong. And what I really believe, and you know, my dad and I have talked about this a lot vis-a-vis -vis his experience of being growing up Jewish in a kind of mostly Christian world, actually, I think that all of us are in that position in some way or another, but it can be easier for some people to ignore that about themselves because the world isn't constantly telling them about it or showing it to them. But this is the, to me, this is the whole meaning of the doctrine of original sin is that each one of us is kind of at this hobbled remove from some, that picture of what they, what they could be. And which is why I think when, yeah. when the homosexual is reminded of this more emphatically, very early right. in ways right. that he right. can't right. fix, yeah. then that truth becomes clearer to him or her. And, that's, I think, what I'm saying. And also that there's a certain element of suffering yeah. involved, a certain that I think does bring one closer to God. I mean, I think for, as a, for a Catholic like me, I mean, it is, it's, it's, and this is, this is why it's different than Buddhism is that suffering brings you to God. It's not something to be mm. overcome in, entirely. It is a pathway for God to make himself apparent in your life. Mm. So let's, let's, what do we mean by God? I know that that's, but you, this book, it's structured in such a way, how to save the West. It, 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 it sounds like a self-help book. in, in self -help <laughs> But in fact, it's structured around some really profound questions and it attempts to answer them in rather plain English. Um, uh, what does it mean? The thought that there is, I mean, I, I was in my own thinking about writing about this. I was the way word God in a way, big G God. Mm itself is like one of those church words that you were talking about that's begun to, the, in some yeah. ways, because it instantly conjures up this man with a beard or whatever, yeah. has lost its capacity to, we've lost our capacity to even hear it or understand it. 
I, I'm in yeah. part of me sort of like godness <laughs> might be, even mm. though I do think it is human in, in it's humans can relate to God, uh, mm. but godness, something that's something objectively true and good and loving beyond mm. all of this to what, to which all of this is sort of in some way oriented. Is that what we mean? It's, it's actually, it's not quite what I mean, but l- l- let me maybe back up and Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>